Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hello, and welcome to Compliance Beat, a part four of a multi-part series regarding the brand new uh, U.S. Department of Justice Criminal Division's Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program's updated memo, uh, updated on the last day of April 2019. Uh, this part four is going to be uh, concerning training and communication, which is part 1C of the document, pages four and five, for those of you who are following along. For uh those who have been listening to this podcast for a while, you are aware that I often uh, talk about the second of these two pieces of training and communication. I, I spend a lot of time talking about informal communication. Uh, there are two reasons for that. One, number one reason, which I've oft repeated, is that I feel that informal communication gets short shrift, uh, that it should not get uh, in application uh, across the board. Uh, best practices, if you look at the sentencing guideline standards and you look at guidance, uh, and I'm going to talk about this guidance in particular in just a second, uh, organizations traditionally have tended to overlook uh, informal communications. And I think to their detriment, not only because perhaps they're not completely meeting the standard, but also informal communications are a very, very effective tool in your toolbox for having an effective compliance program. Uh, they uh, are usually, once you get started uh, with a program, uh, low resource, certainly compared to uh, training. Uh, they allow you to reach an audience in a different way uh, and uh, a broader audience sometimes or, or, or a different uh, demographic of that audience in a way that you don't with uh, training, particularly if you have a large organization where you rely on online training. There's a lot of investment in long online training. If there's one part of a uh, program, uh, most programs out there, uh, if an organization is over a certain size, let's say over you know 2,500 or 5,000 employees, there's probably some sort of online training program in place, if nothing else. If, even if there are you know, a few and far between as far as policies go, you're going to have, uh, for most organizations, some sort of training that's going on. Um, if I have, a, I have a few quibbles with this new memo, with the up, updated memo, and if I have a quibble on this section, I'm disappointed uh, to some extent that the Department of Justice uh, doesn't emphasize that second piece as much as I think they should. Uh, number one, because it's in a, if you want an effective program, you really need uh, to have an effective uh, uh, communications campaign, informal communications campaign. Um, there is some discussion in here, and we'll talk about it. But um, if you just read this cold, you could be forgiven uh, in coming away from reading this, thinking that the, uh, the department really only cares about the, those formal training programs that we've all had in place for several years. And I think that's a missed opportunity. And I think that's inconsistent with what we know over a practice over the last 15, 20 years as to what is effective. Certainly, you can't just have informal communications. You need to have formal training, and that training needs to be linked to the policies and procedures and expectations of the organization, which we'll, all, we'll talk about here in a few minutes, uh, that the uh, department, I think, very clearly and carefully outlines. 
So they have a very mature perspective about uh, training. Uh, they talk a lot, uh, and we'll get into the specifics here, about what goes into making that training and what goes into evaluating that training. And if we draw a corollary to what we were talking about in the last episode about the importance of preparing and planning before you actually write or implement a, co uh, a code or a policy and then evaluate it and follow up, uh, there's a simple, there's a similar uh, a perspective around training here that it's not just simply uh, creating the training and, and, and rolling that training out. There's, there has to be some thought beforehand and some evaluation afterwards. Uh, and that's all very mature. Uh, and we'll talk about the specifics here in a couple minutes. But uh, when we get to the discussion of the second half of this hallmark of the sentencing guidelines, communications, it's pretty spare. And I, I'm a little disappointed. So if I were going to give uh, the Department of Justice a, a grade on this Part C on pages four and five of the new memo, I think I'd give them a, a, a solid B, maybe B plus, uh, because it is, I think there's a lot of great information in here about training, uh, but they really missed the boat on, uh, on informal communication. So I want, you, I want you to keep that in mind and go back. As I said, I've probably done many more podcasts around informal communication and having successful informal communication than I have training. And again, the reason why is uh, most organizations, if they have a program at all, uh, they have training uh, and, and, and there's, there's the understanding. There, you don't have to get over uh, the, uh, the inertia against training. Everybody agrees uh, generally as an article of faith, if you will, with regards to compliance that training is important. And so you don't have that uh, sort of hurdle. Whereas communication, it's growing and it's the area that is probably growing the most in the last couple of years. And I'm helping more and more clients uh, and I'm seeing more and more clients really pay attention uh, to that communication piece and finding a lot of, and, and, and earning a lot of dividends from doing that. Uh, but it's still not uh, as universally accepted. So let's talk about uh, Part C. Uh, they uh, uh, interestingly uh, uh, talk about uh, in the beginning linking the uh, effective training back to policies and procedures and really directly uh, in the first paragraph talk about how policies and procedures should be integrated into the organization through periodic training and certification for all directors, officers, relevant employees, and third parties. So this is very interesting that they uh, draw a through line from your policies and procedures to your training. Um, I think you can also read into that policies and procedures, as we've talked about before, code of conduct. So if you have a code of conduct training that's out there, uh, that training really should uh, be uh, uh, directed towards, quote unquote, integrating those, that code of conduct into the organization. So what does that tell us? I think that tells us generally that your training needs to have some sort of strong connection to the material in your written policies and your code of conduct. And if it's divorced from that, if you have a code of conduct and a code of conduct training where the code of conduct training is perhaps off the shelf online code of conduct training, uh, you're going to want to really take a hard look at that and make uh, uh, and, and go through these steps to evaluate whether that uh, really does integrate uh, your code of conduct uh, into the the organization. Um, so that's 
the first sort of threshold is this through line or connection between your policies and procedures and your training. So um, I don't think this means necessarily that you've got to throw all that off the shelf uh, uh, content out. You just need to make sure uh, that the uh, highlights, the, um, uh, the elements of, of that training are consistent with what your uh, written policies uh, state. If not, uh, potentially you don't even get through the threshold here. So that is uh, an interesting take and I think something that you need to pay attention to when you're evaluating the uh, online training or, or, or for that matter, any training that you're doing, and that includes live training. The other important thing here, which is something I've talked about many times before, and I think I've done at least one podcast on this, and that's training your board of directors. Uh, just as the sentencing guidelines call out training of directors, and a lot of organizations miss that, uh, this uh, talks about uh, periodic training and certification for all directors. And another um, occasional miss with organizations is they focus on training and uh, uh, interface with the audit committee of the board of directors because that's the part of the board that has oversight for the compliance program in many organizations or your compliance committee or whatever. But this is all the board members. And I've talked about this before. When you're talking about training the board of directors, you're talking about the full board of directors. The entire board is responsible for the compliance program at your organization. The audit committee may be responsible for the day-to-day -day and have the interface with the operational part of the uh, compliance program, the staff, on a more regular basis and talk about initiatives, reporting, uh, that, that, that regular touch point might be with the audit committee. But the overall board, the, the entire board, is ultimately responsible for the program, and they have to all be trained. And we get the term that we often get when we're talking about training or any other aspect of the program. That's periodic. Well, what does periodic mean? Um, well, you can look at some data out there about training uh, board members. And it's pretty consistent uh, when the question is asked, and it's not asked in a lot of surveys. It's usually on an annual basis. And what I'm finding more and more organizations do is uh, if you have a, a code of conduct training, or an, a, a broad compliance training regime that happens on an annual basis, uh, usually that, and with many organizations, that's online training, then the board is also going through that training. Now, it may be that they don't, uh, they get a version of the training where they don't have to go through and certify, uh, and that's something that I've seen in the past, but here we, here we have a very direct sentence saying, periodic training and certification for all directors. So if your board of directors is not currently taking that all-hands training that everybody else is taking that has the certification component to it, then uh, you need to take a close look at this. And that's in the first or the second paragraph, rather, of Part C on page four uh, of, the, of the memorandum. Uh, you know, oftentimes in the past, I know that uh, uh, compliance team members have been reluctant uh, to sign the board of directors up for online training for code of conduct or anything else saying, uh, they, you know, I don't, it's going to be an uphill battle. But here's the thing. You've got it in black and white now. And the way to, and I've, I've made this argument before, the way to sell it to the board of directors is to say, look, you've got oversight of this program. 
One of the key components of our compliance program at this organization is this all-hands training, this code of conduct training, whatever you call it. And so you need to be familiar with it so that you can evaluate it. So that's how you sell it to them. It's not that they need the training themselves, but they have to have oversight, and this is a key component, so they need to go through it. And if they don't like that, then you can quote, you can quote this memoranda from the Department of Justice, and that might help. Uh, but, but if there was any question before about whether your uh, board of directors needs to take that uh, uh, code of conduct training or the training that is uh, provided to the broad uh, audience of uh, stakeholders and employees at your organization, uh, should be no question now. Um, so if you're not if you're not there yet, if you want some other suggestions <laughs> about how to uh, get the board interested in taking that training and not fighting about it, uh, go back through. I, I, I believe um, I don't have the the podcast uh, date, but I know I've done a couple of podcasts about training board of directors. Go back and listen to those because I have some ideas in there about how to approach the sometimes delicate issue. From I'm finding that more and more it's not a big issue. And here's the other thing. Here's here's the truth. Uh, I've had a few clients in the past that were reticent about doing this, particularly a few years ago when it was not something that was commonly done. Uh, and none of them, zero, zero percent, uh, have come back and told me, oh, I got a lot of pushback and, oh, they, they didn't want to do it or they didn't like it or it was a problem. Universally, uh, those organizations that have asked their board of directors to take the training have had a positive experience. So um, try not to be too concerned about it. Um, if you need some ammunition, uh, the Department of Justice has now provided you more. Uh, but really, everybody, everybody needs to take this training. And I also mentioned at the end of the sentence, it says, and where appropriate agents and business partners, so third parties, uh, also need to take uh, training. They may not be your code of conduct training. Uh, the uh, department uh, 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 qualifies this by saying where appropriate. Uh, more and more organizations are training third parties where they feel it's necessary because of the risk involved in the, that relationship, uh, whether these are uh, suppliers uh, uh, or vendors of some sort or whether these are uh, uh, third-party uh, representatives, agents, or uh, distributors, what have you, uh, whatever that relationship is, uh, or contractors. You know, Oftentimes, a good example here that comes up frequently is uh, if you're running a, ho a hospital or hospital organization, you probably have a lot of physicians that don't actually work for you who are contractors, but you still need to train them on important high-risk issues. Uh, so, so this may not be that uh, annual all-hands training, but it will be some sort of training, and the department is calling that out here. So keep that in mind. Uh, the other thing uh, that is right here in this second paragraph in the preamble, so uh, they're... they're uh, highlighting it as, as an important thing, is that the training needs to be tailored. And they call it a couple of criteria for tailoring, audience size, sophistication, and subject matter expertise. Um, size, I'm not really sure what they're going for there other than uh, to say that if you've got, an or you've got a population size that's not that great, perhaps you shouldn't be doing online training uh, if a live training or, or some sort of web-based training that has some interactivity might be better, although we have online training that has interactivity these days. Uh, I'm not really sure exactly what they're going for with, with size, but I think the important thing here is that you need to tailor your training to your audience, uh, whatever those different dynamics might be. 
subject matter expertise, I would include in that uh, 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 educational attainment and language attainment. Uh, it's not really worthwhile to send out an English uh, online training to a population where their English has a second language or you know that population has a very low education education attainment and language attainment uh, level. That's not going to help them understand uh, complex, particularly complex material. So, un, you know, tailoring uh, your training, and they're really focused only on training here, but I would say communications as well to the audience you're trying to reach is very, very important. Um, and then they give a sort of rip from the headlines uh, uh, example here and say, some companies, for instance, give employees practical advice or case studies to address real life scenarios and or guidance on how to obtain advice on a case by case basis. So what they're saying here is uh, don't uh, give uh, a training that goes through the legislative history of the FCPA and the UK Bribery Act, but provide some uh, uh, Q&As or scenarios around those uh, bribery issues that might come up that are going to be more in uh, story format that might be more digestible uh, by, by, by the audience. I think that's true whether you're talking about a, uh, an audience that's sophisticated or not. And uh, so I, 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 I maybe object a little bit to the, the uh, adjective here of sophistication. I think all of us respond better to scenario-based training uh, rather than a litany of uh, legislative history about what the FCPA might say. Um, and, and I include the lawyers uh, in this audience among, among those that would respond better to a scenario, to a story. Uh, we are all about storytelling. I'm recording this the day after the finale of Game of Thrones uh, was aired, uh, and there was some dialogue in there about how important stories, uh, storytelling is. And I think uh, to a great extent, what, you know, there's been an evolution in what we expect around compliance and in, in particular training and communication. And a lot of that is creating stories that people can relate to. Uh, so if I have a quibble here, it's not that it has anything to do with sophistication or subject matter expertise and certainly not audience size. I think we all respond better uh, to scenarios and stories. And, and I think that uh, scenario-based training, whether that's live or online, or whether uh, those are examples that are provided in an email to managers to disseminate during their live their live uh, meetings or, or interactions with their reports. Whatever it is, uh, storytelling is going to be uh, a more effective way of reaching people through training or communication, or even where, and this is something that I, I probably will, will want to do um, a podcast about in the future. It really doesn't apply right to this memoranda, which really focuses so much on quote-unquote training. But I think the line is blurring to some extent between training and communication. Uh, our quote-unquote formal training uh, has, has evolved. You know, five years ago, or certainly 10 years ago, uh, when we're talking about online training, we we're talking about an hour-long canned course. Uh, we're talking about a course that uh, may have scenarios, may be story-based, but was pretty lengthy. Um, and that's not what organizations are training on anymore. Uh, if you have an hour-long course, uh, you're, you're, you're dealing with a, a, a mode of online training that is going by the wayside quickly. Now, we still have these 
expectations, for instance, in California and Connecticut and other jurisdictions that we train two hours, uh, managers two hours uh, on uh, harassment. So you still have to fill those hours with something. Uh, but, but beyond those uh, uh, specific technical requirements, training is shrinking in, in, in length. And so these things change and they morph. And, and there's, I think, as we move down the road, it's going to be much harder to discern between what's informal communication and what's training. And I think that's a good thing because I think both of them are developing in, the, in, the, in a positive direction. Uh, uh, training is becoming less formal and more storytelling, and communication is becoming uh, something rather than nothing, <laughs> which was what it was in the past, at least in our, uh, our little piece of the world. So that's all to the good. Um, the, uh, we're moving on to page five. The first uh, sentence on that page talks about measuring effectiveness of the training curriculum. Uh, and basing uh, this, uh, the development of the curriculum on prior compliance incidents. I don't think that's much of a problem. I think most organizations, when they have an issue, uh, they respond rather uh, uh, reactively, if you will, uh, with communication, policy, training. They, they cover the boardwalk whenever there's been a, a compliance incident. I think uh, to a certain extent, um, the focus, and not just here, but throughout this memo and other guidance about responding uh, to, to compliance failures or misconduct is a little bit misplaced because uh, any organization, unless they have much more serious problems than uh, contemplating the nuances of their training, uh, are going to respond <laughs> and have some sort of uh, cogent uh, training and communication and policy response to uh, prior compliance incidents. Um, measuring effectiveness of, of training. Uh, there are online training platforms now uh, that are much that gather um, uh, training metrics beyond just completion rates, and so you can measure how well people perform. Uh, they're they're more dynamic, if you will. Uh, I know several of the vendors out there in our space uh, offer these sort of dynamic platforms that will measure uh, uh, learning attainment, if you will, in uh, uh, kind of a real time basis as 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 individuals are. Um, completing training and will adapt. You know, it's called adaptive training. Will ad will adapt the actual course based on the performance of the individual learner. Um, so I think uh, there's, you know, that's certainly a way to measure effectiveness. And gathering that data is a way to measure effectiveness. The other thing that I uh, have talked about many times in the past, and I'm a firm believer in, is measuring effectiveness of that uh, retention at a different point. Uh, rather than when uh, somebody has, you know, finally been forced into a corner to take that training before you shut off their email or uh, otherwise punish them for not taking that training, uh, you know, measure their atta their their attainment, their their retention at a different point. Um, I think a good example of this is uh, if you are rolling out uh, training to part of the population on anti-corruption, since we've been, you know, I always use anti-corruption because it's an easy example. A lot of organizations understand this. But uh, if you run out the anti-corruption training in December, and we're now here in May, so we're, you know, six months on, uh, and maybe even before that, maybe three months on, uh, you know, send out a questionnaire to the sample, um, you know, a group of the individuals that took the training that's representative of the overall group or the overall group if it's small enough 
and send them five questions that uh, will measure their, re their um, retention of the salient points from that training. And then you can measure, you know, how do they perform, you know, and how do they perform, you know, maybe you ask them same or similar questions that you can map to the questions that they took during the training so that you can see individually how people fared and whether they, how they performed at the time and how they performed, you know, three months, six months on. And that will give you a sense of how effective that training is. And you can, you can uh, uh, do that uh, on an ongoing basis and, and take the trend and see how the training's doing. I think it's really important to do that. Um, again, there's platforms now, uh, online platforms that allow you to do some of that in real time as people are taking the training and gives, gives you much more data than what would have been given in the past, which was usually simply, uh, okay, we've got 98.9% who have taken the training. Now you can get a lot more data on most of these platforms. And I think it's important to have an LMS platform or some other platform where you can go back and shoot them uh, a five-question survey, a 10-question survey at some point in the future. And again, it all can be automated and, and uh, measure that retention. I think that's an important way uh, to show uh, that you're looking into effectiveness. Um, then uh, uh, the next part of uh, part C on page five, the remaining part, is sort of, is sort of uh, what, as we've been talking about in the last few podcasts, uh, th th in this question format that we recognize from the 2017 memo that this memo updated. Um, and the first query is risk-based training. What training have employees had uh, received? Uh, has the company provided tailored training for high-risk and control employees, including training that addresses risks in the area where misconduct has occurred? Have supervisory employees received different or supplementary training? What analysis has the company undertaken to determine who should be trained and on what subject? So uh, risk assessment, going back uh, before you uh, roll out the training, figuring out who's going to be covered, who needs to get specific training, um, and, and having a reasonable basis why you've made that decision that's based on the risks you face as an organization. I think that's pretty straightforward. And again, I've talked again here about um, misconduct and responding to misconduct. Again, I don't think that's too much of a problem for most organizations. Uh, if there's training in a certain area, um, oftentimes it's there because uh, organizations are responding uh, to misconduct at some point that, that happened in that area. Um, or at least they have, uh, they're responding to the risks, which is what we want them to do. So uh, again, if you draw a Comparison to what we were talking about last time around uh, written policies, this is going back and uh, before you're implementing, putting together that training, uh, contemplating your risks and what you need to do to uh, address those risks through the training. Second question covers some areas that we've already talked about here, and it's titled form slash con content slash effectiveness of training. Has the training been offered in the form and language appropriate for the audience? We already talked about that. Uh, thinking about what uh, uh, what's the education and uh, language attainment of your audience, and where they look, where are they located? Is it is it uh, reasonable to expect that they're going to take online training if they're working in a factory, for example, or they're out in a truck driving around uh, their alignment for your for, for a utility or something like that? So, what's appropriate? 
Is the training provided online or in person or both? And what is the company's rationale for its choice? Uh, I've said many times, and I will say it again, I think you need a mix of both. Uh, if you're under a certain size, uh, you probably don't have online training, and that's probably fine. If you're over a certain size and you have several thousand employees that you need to train, you probably cannot do that all live. So you probably need to have both. Uh, even if you're over a certain size, I don't think you eliminate live training because there's a give and take. Uh, it can go in a direction that even the most sophisticated, uh, interactive, uh, 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 proactive uh, uh, learning platforms can't do. So I think you have to have a mix unless you're under a certain size when it's probably going to be all live. But you need to have uh, thought through why you do what you do and be able to defend it. Uh, again, once again, has the training addressed lessons learned from prior compliance incidents? I, again, I, I'm wondering why all of this focus. I mean, are they really... Again, if you've had a failure and you're not addressing it through your policies and procedures and your training and your communication, uh, then, you know, I think it's sort of de facto your program is not effective. Uh, so I'm not too sure about that. I think most organizations that have had a failure are going to address that. Now, are you addressing it effectively? That's another question. Uh, but but I, I, I just don't think most organizations are ignoring those issues. How has the company measured effectiveness? We already talked about that. I think the way to do that is uh, through the, the platform itself or through some sort of measurement at a later date to test retention and effectiveness. You can also ask uh, uh, very um, uh, subjective questions to the population around the training. Do you like our training? If not, why not? <laughs> do you find our training too long? Do you find our training too boring? What do you find boring about it? What do you find, uh, uh, what do you think would be more effective? I think you can ask those questions too to try to improve the training and assess the value of the training. What would you like to see for training? I think those are all effective questions to ask along with those retention questions that are subject matter specific. Um, how, has, uh, how, how have employees been tested? We've talked about that just now and before. How has the company addressed employees who fail all? or a portion of the testing. Now, this is the harder one that I think some organizations don't have much of an answer for. So the good thing about getting more data is you have a better picture of what's going on. The bad thing about getting more data is you now have an obligation to respond to the data. So if you get bad data that you know certain members of the population are getting a, a, an F on their training or are taking far longer than the mean uh, to get through uh, the training, then you need to address that. You need to uh, say, okay, we've got an anomaly here where we've got a higher proportion of our employees in this business unit that are failing this. How do we address it? How do we get to it? Um, so the good news is the more data you get, the, the, the less in the dark you are about where you are and where the population, population is with regards to retention and understanding uh, on these risk topics. The bad news is that means you have to do something about it. And if you don't, uh, I think that that's, uh, you're actually in a worse position than if you didn't even know it in the first place. The last thing you want to do is put together one of these uh, sophisticated LMS or training uh, platforms, gather all of this data. The data shows some trends uh, that are not all that pleasant and 
you uh, don't do anything about it. That is worse than just not knowing. Um, not knowing is not good either. Uh, if we have three doors to choose from here, uh, the, 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 the only winning door is finding out where everyone is, including those that are behind, and then addressing it. That's the winning door to choose of the three doors. You don't want to put your hands over your eyes and, and hear no evil, see no evil, uh, speak no evil. Uh, and you don't want to gather all this data and have a have an understanding and then decide, uh, uh, that's just too hard. The, the resources are too great to, to address this issue. If you have the resources to, to put in a system like that where you're gathering that data, then you should, uh, as part of the budgeting process, plan to have a way to react to it and, and uh, provide follow-up once you get that data. You need to plan that next step. Uh, gathering the data is just the first step. So uh, that's uh, a lot of talk about training, and then we finally talk about communications. And again, uh, our friends at the department and the fraud section, the criminal division, are really hung up about misconduct. <laughs> uh, the next uh, uh, query, uh, the bold title is communications about misconduct what is senior management done to let employees know uh, about their position regarding misconduct what communications have there been generally when an employee is terminated or disciplined uh, and what's told this is an important point that I've talked about before that I think it's really important to uh, for organizational justice reasons to be very clear and transparent about what happens when there's been misconduct because people know something's happened Jim has disappeared. <laughs> He's gone. And your employment uh, counsel has said, we can't talk about this. It's an employment issue. You know, we could have litigation uh, because of this termination. Uh, you can't really say anything. I, as I've said many, many times, I, as the person responsible for compliance, you need to push back on that. Um, it may well be that there are reasons and the determination is that you really can't say anything or much of anything. But I find in most cases you can. You can scrub it. You can anonymize it. People already know something happened. You can turn it into a scenario that doesn't name names, uh, that perhaps changes the facts just enough to where you can uh, stop the heart palpitations of the of employment counsel. You need to fight. You need to push back on that because what you end up doing when you just ignore this and you know people disappear. Uh, but the people out in the field don't know that you've done anything about it. They just know that the person's gone. They don't know why or how or how you've handled it or how it's not going to happen in the future. Um, so it's it's just not uh, the most effective way to handle it. So this is a good a good point. And here I've been preaching about this for a few years now, and I've done, I've talked about it in, in a couple of podcasts. But now we have the Department of Justice calling it out, saying, "What have you done?" With regards to this, what communications uh, have there been when somebody's been terminated? So uh, it's not just me saying it out in the in the wilderness anymore. So when you go to talk to employment counsel and they're saying no, 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 then pull out this uh, paragraph from page five of this April 2019 memo saying, look, we've got to justify our program to the Department of Justice if there's ever an issue. So now we're to the last query, and we still haven't talked about communication in a meaningful way. What's going on, Department of Justice? Communication's important. Um, 
So uh, the last uh, bullet, if you will, is uh, availability of guidance. What resources have been available to employees to provide guidance relating to compliance policies? How has the company assessed whether its employees know when to seek advice and whether they would be willing to do so? So there's two things here. And this first sentence, I think, is the, you know, the only bone I'm going to get with regards to communication. So what collateral material is out there? So there's at least going to be a query about whether you have uh, 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 these informal communication materials out there, posters, uh, online uh, articles, uh, bullet points to managers, manager guides, podcasts. I really am a big believer in podcasts, uh, little videos, whatever it is, you know, ways, uh, you know, ways to get to people in an informal way. And then the second query is kind of interesting. How is the company assessed whether its employees know when to seek advice and whether they're willing to, willing to do so. So this really isn't uh, training and communication. This is uh, monitoring and this you know usually falls into monitoring auditing. This is the survey piece, the the uh, the um, uh, uh, compliance survey or culture survey um, that that many organizations do on a regular basis. And usually a big component of a culture survey is uh, do you know what to do if something if, if you see something. Uh, that you think is misconduct or violates our policy. Have you seen misconduct? If you have, have you reported it? If not, why not? Retaliation. Um, all of those questions that we uh, generally ask in a culture survey. So it's interesting that that is in here. Um, I don't know that I would have necessarily put it here, but, but that is an important thing. I think that what you can read from that too is that they expect that uh, a lot of the informal communication is going to be around uh, reporting. And I think that comes from this notion, if you are a government contractor and you you uh, have to comply with the FAR guidelines, one of the key differences between FAR compliance and, and just compliance for organizations that don't have that requirement is having a very specific hotline poster out there. So I think the government's coming from this perspective where uh, they want to make sure people understand uh, avenues for reporting, and that's part of this uh, broader idea of communication. But to me, again, I, I would give them a, a solid B or B plus just because it's pretty strong on training. But, but this is, I think, a fairly immature perspective on what communications, what informal communications can do. So I would encourage organizations to really look at the best practices of other organizations because, again, the other thing, uh, and I don't know if I mentioned this in the, in the prior three podcasts, but I feel the same way about this guidance as I do uh, with regards to the sentencing guidelines. This is the floor. This is not necessarily best practices. And I would say very strongly, just based on my experience and what I'm seeing my clients do and what I'm seeing out there, and, and if you go to uh, SCCE or ECI and see what other organizations are presenting around uh, communications, it's much more mature uh, than this. Uh, the, the, it's getting more mature and more sophisticated, and, and, and it's becoming a bigger and much, much more important and robust part of, uh, of the uh, compliance program. So... Important information here around training, minor mention around communication that I think uh, if you want to be in a best practices program, you'd want to amplify. So that's uh, part C of part one of uh, this memoranda. We're going to move on uh, to the next part soon. We're only on page five of how many pages? I forget. It's, it's a lot longer than it used to be. It is 18 pages now. Uh, so we're not even a third of the way through yet. Um, but we covered some really important topics, and I wanted to spend some time on them, uh, not the least of that being, obviously, training and communication. 
So if you have any questions, if you uh, have ideas for future podcasts once we finish this series, which will probably take a couple more weeks, then please do let me know. I'm always interested. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Uh, please do feel free to reach out at any time. You can uh, contact us on compliancebeat.com or moreheadconsulting.com, or you can always email me directly at eric at moreheadconsulting if you have any questions. One last thing I wanted to mention, uh, a good friend of mine, Ryan McConnell, who practices in Houston, former assistant uh, U.S. attorney in Houston and a longtime criminal defense attorney. Ryan and his team have put together uh, a, a, a direct comparison between the 2017 version of this memo and the new updated April 2019 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs memo. Uh, it can be found on their website, uh, mcconnellgroup.com. I'll have the web link in the uh, show notes for this particular podcast if you want to take a look. And I'll mention it again next week, too, for those um, that want to uh, take a look. It's, it's very detailed. It goes through uh, sort of section by section and, and highlights the differences uh, between the 2017 memo and the 2019 memo. So for those of you that are uh, really trying to highlight those differences, if you need to report internally about those differences, it can be very. this can be very helpful. Uh, so we're going to continue on. We'll have part five here in the next couple of days, I think. Continue to slog through <laughs> this. Uh, I, I, I think some of these sections are going to go a little bit quicker than these first few, but these first few, first few were really important topics. You know, we've got... Uh, risk assessment, we've got uh, policies and procedures, we've got training and communication. Now, those are the things that really are the uh, heart and souls, the bones of a strong program. So I wanted to spend some time on that. Uh, and so until next time, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.